0: Next to William Shakespeare, the 17th century's John Milton ranks as probably the most renowned of English poets. You maybe recognize the name from some literature class a long time ago, or maybe one you're presently taking, but uh, possibly more recognizable is the most enduring literary work that Milton uh, penned, Paradise Lost. Paradise Lost is an ingenious poetic treatment of the fall of man recorded in Genesis chapter 3. And what it lacks in theological accuracy, it delivers in creativity. Adding to its interest, Milton wrote this classic poem after he had suffered numerous personal reversals in life. Uh, One of the most notable and fitting to our song service this morning was blindness. He wrote Paradise Lost after he had lost his sight. For Milton physically... It was as if paradise had been lost. Life had been profoundly changed for this man. But the loss of sight is not the loss of life. As these songs that we've sung this morning, as Mark mentioned to us here, as Fanny Crosby's writings bring out, blindness adds pain to life, makes it difficult, but to become blind does not mean that one ceases to live. There is life after the loss of sight. And Milton seems to realize this, that his own blindness is a sort of living parable of the fall. Like a blind man losing his sight, Adam and Eve's world had been drastically changed by sin. In fact, the difference between Adam's life before the fall and after the fall is greater than the difference experienced by Milton when he lost his eyesight as an adult. As we've studied through the third chapter of Genesis, we've witnessed the demise of incomparable proportions with horrifying implications. Last week we noticed in verses 14 through 19 the curse that comes through the fall. In verses 14 and 15, the curse on the serpent physically, crawling on the belly. Relationally, there would be this war between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of the woman. Then in verse 16, we see the curse of the woman, immense pain physically, and the very thing that defines her most as a female, the birth of a child, and then the ravages of depravity in her relationship with her husband. In verses 17 through 19, we see the curse of the man, everything subjected to frustration, and ultimately life itself giving in to death because of his sin. Due to the introduction of sin, life on earth has been dramatically changed. Physically and socially, life is now a matter of pain, of resistance against trial. But what we learn in the remainder of Genesis 3 is that life goes on and operates under the umbrella of God's grace. There is in Genesis 3 a grounding realism that steers us clear of the despair of pessimism when we think of the fall and also the trap of blind optimism that life is just getting better and better and somehow we're going to get on top of it we live in a fallen twisted depraved resistant hard harsh world But life goes on in the hope of God's grace. Compared to Genesis 2, Genesis 3 is a very different world. Paradise has been lost. But as Moses describes the difference of this fallen world, we find hope and we find grace clearly foreshadowed in these next verses. As we finish verse 19 of Genesis chapter 3, I get the picture, it's almost as if we're sitting in a doctor's examination room. We've just had an accident and we've lost our sight. And the door has just closed as the doctor has left and told us that we would never again regain our sight. And we're sitting there alone in the exam room on the table All of the implications cascading down upon us of how different our world is going to be and what it's going to mean. And there as we sit in our loneliness, in the horror of the moment, the door opens and in comes someone. You fill in the blank. A friend, a a mate, a parent, someone close who takes our hand in the darkness and says, it's okay, I'll be here. That's what verse 20 is in Genesis chapter 3. It's God's hand of grace coming into us in this different fallen world and saying, it's okay, I'll be here through it. We find this in a foreshadowing of this grace in all of these changes of the fall With the differences that are described here in verses 20 through 24. And we find, first of all, in in a different name, this foreshadowing of grace. Verse 20, a different name. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. How does that verse strike you? And, And what we've been reading here? It seems very out of place, doesn't it? It kind of just hits us like a historical note. Oh, by the way, Adam called his wife Eve. And let's move on with the next thing. Don't be deceived. This is a highly significant addition to the text. And we need to understand it in its context. Moses, I, I've been so impressed through this study as well as through an earlier study in Exodus, he never loses a word. What he says is always very significant. And he, he says, uh, he, he just leaves things unstated, you know, like. The, the the creation of the stars, you know, he just and God created the stars, and that's all He says. Uh, as He's describing the life and the, the birth of Moses, uh, his his mother conceives and then she gives birth. You know, they're just these these simple statements, but there's so much between. So much to be seen, so much to be understood. This is a simple statement. Adam just names his wife Eve, but think of it in context. Go back to verse two or chapter 2 and verse 23. So the Lord God... I'm sorry, that was chapter 3. Verse 2 and verse 23. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Adam's already named his wife he was Ish, man. He names her Isha, woman. He, she comes out of man. He's already named her. So what is it that moves Adam to give his wife a different name, Eve? We go to chapter 3 and verse 15, where we read of this promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, He, that is the ultimate representative of the woman, will crush your head, remember the Hebrew, bruise your head unto death, and you will bruise his heel unto death. God promises here that the woman, not yet named Eve, will be the mother of an offspring which will engage in mortal combat with the children of Satan. This war between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent will culminate with the ultimate representative of the woman bruising Satan's head. Now, Adam and his wife do not fully conceive of who this representative might be. They don't have a picture in their mind of Jesus Christ. But what they do conceive is that this woman, this woman here in the garden, Esha, this woman... She will be the source of that child's life. They know that they've been cursed and they know that they will die. But God has said, this woman's offspring will ultimately bruise the head of the serpent. So they learn that they're going to live long enough to see children born that will ultimately destroy this work of Satan on earth. And so in context, it's no accident that Adam names his wife Eve, which comes from the Hebrew word meaning life. She is life. Remember chapter 2 and verse 19. There the Lord had formed out of the ground beasts of the field and the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to everything. There's no woman found, of course, in that context, but thinking it, remembering back to that context, we brought attention to the fact that to name in the Hebrew mind is something of great significance. To name something is to seek to understand it in light of its in the, the world around. In chapter 2, Adam named his wife to reflect her connection to him. I am Ish, man. She is Isha, she comes from me. But here, Adam does not see her in relationship to himself, but in relationship to her offspring. She's Eve, life, the giver of life. And so he renames her Eve, drawing attention to her work as mother, and ultimately the mother of the child who would bruise the serpent's head. So this renaming is nothing less than an act of what? It's an act of faith on Adam's part. And it indicates a repentant heart. Because although God promised death, He also promises an offspring. And Adam trusts God's promise. Naming his wife Eve. Repentance. When God told Adam not to eat of the tree, Adam doubted God's word. But in naming his wife Eve, Adam evidences faith in God's word. Adam says, God will, through this woman, bring about an offspring which will destroy the serpent. I like that. I've come to realize now what it means to walk away from God. What it means to listen to to the serpent. I believe this promise. I love this promise. And so in faith, I will name my wife, life, the life giver, mother. How different our world. Yet again, the Bible dignifies and honors motherhood in another unique way. Due to the curse, she will give birth in great pain, but in that pain, the hope of the ultimate Redeemer who would enter the world through the birth canal of a Jewish peasant woman. And so in every human birth, there is a noble parable of the final victory of the woman's offspring. How terribly fitting that the serpent's offspring labors to make motherhood a mockery and the womb earth's most active death chamber. It's a different world. It's a fallen world with the conflict of the children of Satan in conflict with the children of God. But there is hope in this world. There is in the midst of all of the resistance and the pain and the curse, faith in the promised Redeemer, Jesus Christ. That hope gave stability and meaning to Adam in the aftermath of the fall, and it should give the same to us. Christian, as you face the difficulties of life, as you lean against the resistance, it does matter that Jesus is coming. It does matter. It is a matter of faith. We must respond to it. A different name. We see the hope coming and the promise of the coming one. And this act of faith in trusting that message. We see then in verse 21 a different clothing. The Lord God made garments for the skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Grace again glistens unmistakably from these words. God made. What does it call to your attention? God made. Chapter 1 and chapter 2, God made this and God made that. God made, God made, God created, God created. First day 7, what happens? God rests. Now we have God, in a sense, down on his knees again, making, doing something. He's acting again. He's again at work, working to craft clothes for the fallen couple. Why do Adam and Eve need clothes in the first place? We go back to chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. Notice them with me if you would. Uh, Genesis 3, verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for the food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. Adam and Eve need clothes due to their own sin. And so it is an Immeasurably gracious act of God to step in and to provide the need left by their own immorality. They were wrong. They fell. They sinned. And God's on his knees making garments for them. He doesn't write them off and he doesn't throw them away, but he graciously does something about the problem. Might be a good challenge to each one of us. It's easy to criticize, it's easy to downplay, it's easy to dismiss. It's yet another thing to get down on your knees and to help and to restore. And that's just what God does. But wait a minute. Didn't they have clothes already? Notice chapter 3, verse 7 again. Or 2, 7. Where am I? I'm lost here. Chapter 3, verse 7. 3, 7, the latter part of the verse. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They already have clothes. It is vital to note that God deems it necessary to supply Adam and Eve with different clothes. And the reason is not merely that leather is more comfortable than foliage, which I would imagine it probably is. But the implications, I think, are twofold. First of all, their their own clothes were inadequate. As verse 7 made clear in chapter 3, fig leaves were twisted together. That's the actual Hebrew reading. God provides something different, something better. But we cannot forget that God does not just suggest this new fashion to them. He himself creates the clothes. The clothes they made were inadequate. God himself supplies adequate covering for their shame, and that leads to the second implication, not only that their clothes were inadequate, but secondly, adequate clothes would require death. There was to this point in time no death, but God makes garments of skin. In chapter 1, and verse 30, we find that the animal world and man only ate vegetables or vegetation of some sort, fruit, vegetables, and the like. There was no killing of animals. There was no eating in this sense. Based upon the account of Abel in chapter 4, verses 2 through 4, you might want to skim that there, we find Abel is a shepherd. And we find that he kills a lamb for sacrifice. And I think it's then fairly safe to assume that God, in full view of the couple, kills a lamb or some like animal, demonstrating to the fallen couple that the covering of their nakedness comes at the cost of blood. God doesn't just waste his time. What he does always instructs us and teaches us and helps us. There's something pedagogical, something that is teaching in all that God does. And so, as He's there essentially on His hands and knees in the garden making these skins, He's saying something to Adam and Eve Your clothes, don't cut it. We're led to believe that this was the case because the entire Old Testament sacrificial system used this very imagery to demonstrate the concept of substitutionary atonement. You've read it in Leviticus. It says, as you take your sacrifice to the priest, lay your hand on it. And you can imagine, I mean, put yourself there. This animal is going to be killed while your hand is on the head of the animal. There is no doubt that that animal is dying, and you're going to get a sense of that. And as Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11 says, for the life of a creature is in the blood. Listen to this. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. That's in the covenant, in the code of how to sacrifice. The blood makes atonement for one's life. And so we have here blood shed providing the skin of the animal, which then covers Adam and Eve's nakedness again it's not just a change in fashion as beneficial as this change certainly was but there's something to it what we have here is a primitive object lesson adam and eve are taught that only god can cover their sin and only by means of the death of a substitute the fig leaves were a man-made attempt to cover themselves. The leather skins were a God-made, God-given gift of covering. And that's what Adam and Eve needed to always understand and what we still need to understand. God demonstrates to this couple that he must provide the solution to their sin. You can't cover your own sin. How much of, what was clear, how much of that was clear to them We don't know, but as the progeny of Adam, God consistently makes this lesson plain to us, not only here in the garden, not only in the sacrificial system, but in ultimately the person of Jesus Christ who gives his life in our behalf, taking our penalty and giving his life to pay it and to cover our sin. It's a different world a different world that Adam and Eve now inhabit. It's a world filled with the harsh realities of sin, but there is hope. Although we have invited the mess of the curse into our lives by sinning against God, there is a substitute whose blood can cover our guilt. And the rest of the Bible develops a theme of substitutionary atonement, forgiveness through the death of a substitute. That grace of God gave hope to Adam and Eve. How much more should it give hope to us personally who have met the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? A different name, a different covering, and then we see hope and light in a different habitat. Verse 22. Notice verse 22. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Let's focus on the first part of that verse just briefly. In one sense, the serpent had been right. Adam and Eve had been blissfully ignorant of evil, but by taking the forbidden fruit, they now knew good and evil. They now had a taste of deciding for themselves what is right and what is wrong, contrary to the Creator's will. They knew what sin was. Satan deceived them by not explaining that such knowledge would not allow them to usurp God's authority. It would only bring pain and misery into their life. But the fact remains, they are now depraved. They've exercised their will to reject God's word. They did it once. They can do it again. The horror of this prospect is revealed in the second half of verse 22 that if he's allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat, he'll live forever. These words are really uh, words of God's deliberation. That's not really, it's it, the NIV kind of cheats here to help us to understand it, but it, it really would read something like, and now lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And it kind of just tails off. God's deliberating here. He's thinking of this this terrible prospect. Now in verse 23, the narrator will jump in, interrupting God's deliberation as he's kind of thinking through this and describes God's action based upon that deliberation. Verse 23, so the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden. He banished him. Uh, The Hebrew word is an intensive word to expel, to throw out strong action. There was a danger that man in his fallen nature might eat of the tree of life and thus live forever in depravity. Isn't that ironic? Ironically, we see on this side of the fall that death is gracious. Because if it wasn't for death, we'd go on living in this depravity forever. What was Adam to do outside the garden? Verse 23, continuing on, to work the ground from which he had been taken. The Lord banishes him from the garden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. That's what he was doing in the garden. But now he's going to do it outside the garden. That's what he was doing with God. Now he's going to do it outside of that unique presence of God. And now work was going to be a lot harder. He would labor in pain and sweat But life goes on. Adam is to work the ground from which he was taken, as in verse 19, he's going to return to that earth, to that ground in death. But God's not finished setting up the parameters of the fallen world order yet. There's going to be this painful toil of labor to make a living. We then find in verse 24, after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden a cherry beam and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the Tree of Life. This word drive out, both in meaning and in the particular verbal form, indicate that Adam had to be forced to leave Eden. He did not want to go. We have a uh, little book at home for the kids that uh, talks about uh, these first chapters of Genesis tremendous book it 's a greatly illustrated and it shows Adam and Eve uh, coming out of the garden kind of down this hill and landing real hard in the dust so that 's probably a pretty good illustration. They had to be driven out because adam didn 't want to leave. He knew that this was the place to be, and apparently he would want to return. The danger of this passion was that he might eat from the tree of life. Apparently he had not eaten from the tree of life or maybe we could conjecture you had to keep eating from the tree of life from time to time to to live forever. But whatever the case, God knew that Adam would want to eat the fruit of the tree of life. Very possibly as he felt death beginning to weigh in upon him or the first time he got a real good cold or something like that, he might want to go back and grab some of that fruit. God knew that would be the case. And the danger would be, even though we don't like this fallen world, we so naturally long to preserve it. And so the danger would be for Adam to see in that tree an elixir for life that would allow him to live in his depravity forever, and he would probably do it. So to guard Adam from that destiny, God graciously positions Cherubim on the garden's east side, to keep them out. Cherubim, the plural for cherub. Uh, They were apparently the highest class of angelic being. They are honored with the service in closest proximity to God. Most notably serving as that movable throne of God. You remember that possibly from Ezekiel. As these these angels... uh, uh, hover in the air and above them is the throne of God and it goes of course where he decides for it to go but these angels hover in his presence these angels are illustrated for us in this work on the on the cover of the Ark of the Covenant the picture being that above them in literal Uh, Fashion were actual angels that resided as the throne or the, the moving of the throne of God. And that was illustrated on the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was a picture. The reality is these really exist. These angels are true angels. They hover under the throne of God and transport it wherever he chooses. Now, it's significant here that the cherubim guard the east entrance of Eden. This is not meaningless geographical detail. Throughout the book of Genesis, Moses n- carefully notes the direction of man's movements. Babylon is in which direction? Chapter 11, verse 2, to the east. He makes that point. Sodom and Gomorrah is in which direction? Chapter 13, 11. he's careful to make the point, to the east. For the people of God, entrance into the promised land is accomplished with a westward invasion. The return to the land from captivity is a westward migration. And most significantly, whenever the Israelites set up the tabernacle in the wilderness, or later, whenever they entered the temple, the entrance was always at the east. So the tabernacle temple was entered as one moved westward. And the further one moved westward in that tabernacle temple the closer one came to the very presence of God. And at the tabernacle entrance stood Levites who guarded the gate to keep out anyone that was not appropriately invited inside. And behind that veil, the very end of the whole, uh, of the walk into the tabernacle, behind that veil where the cherry beam rested on the lid of the altar, only the high priest could venture, and only once per year, and only with the blood of a sacrifice. The point is this God is not merely judging Adam, he is beginning to teach mankind. He's teaching Adam, Adam, you've lost paradise. You thought that to be like me in the sense of usurping my authority and my power was the ultimate experience. I am teaching you that what really matters is to be with me. But Adam, your sin separates you from me. And every time you look at the entrance of Eden, there you will find a flashing sword and guarding angels, and there you will remember that sin separates you from fellowship with me. What God also does then is that He begins the instructive process of teaching man the need of redemption in order to meet again with God and to relate to Him as we should. Adam is being punished, but there is thereby born in his heart a passion, unlike he ever knew before, a passion to be with God in paradise. It hurts outside of the garden. It's difficult outside of the garden. I want to be back in Eden. It's all part of God's plan to birth within Adam's heart that passion. Now, instead of taking Eden for granted, Adam would learn in the face of the cruel realities of a fallen world that fellowship with God is the ultimate human joy. And through Adam and the Old Testament worship system and then through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which affected the decimation of the veil, which shielded man from the presence of God in the temple. God continues to teach us that paradise is our heart's ultimate destiny. Eden, a restoration of fellowship with God. It, it, you understand what, what we mean. To be like God is an appropriate thing, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1, but like Him in emulation. To be like God, however, in seeking to usurp His authority is always painful and brings misery. We need to not be like God in that sense. What we want and what we need to want in our heart's desire is to be with God. And that is what the scriptures teach us throughout. And so I ask uh, this morning, as we contemplate these ideas, these truths, I thank God for the hope in this passage. But if you'll bear with me a little longer. This is the question that came out for me. And the question that I present to you as a church where in your life do you demonstrate the thinking that, God's, that taking God's place offers more joy than God's fellowship? Where in your life do you demonstrate the thinking that taking God's place offers more joy than having God's fellowship? What is that act, that thought, that goal, that lust, that dream that you long to fulfill against God's will? You want to be like Him in the sense that you want to determine what you can do and what you can't do, even though you know He doesn't smile on it. What we must do in light of these horrifying reminders of our sin is, first of all, to embrace by faith that it's better to be with God than to be like Him. And we need to replace our cravings for the fruit of our self-will with the joy of his fellowship. Replace the craving to have my way and determine what I'm going to do and how I'm going to handle life with a desire of intimacy with God. That has to mean more to us. Fellowship must mean more than self-rule. Choosing sin, messing around with our own sinful agenda, steals away from our heart the joy of communing with God. And I don't know how often we understand that. As I say to myself, these little liberties that we take for ourselves in the attitudes that we have, in the cravings that we have, each little sinful liberty takes away my taste for the joy of fellowship. And until we want fellowship with God more than the heady wine of self-autonomy, God will have no option but to show us the futility of our sin, the pain of it. As we submit to the will of God, it is his pleasure through Jesus to show us the joys of paradise regained. Now, at this point, your heart's either resonating with what I'm saying, I mean, you're saying, that's right. That's just right. However you land on it in the own moral uh, actions of your life this week and of present, you're saying, that's right. Sin steals the joy of fellowship. Maybe your heart doesn't resonate with these ideas. Speaking for the offspring of the serpent, Immanuel Kant was a philosopher who created the belief system which served as the ground in which the theory of Darwinian evolution sprouted. Now, Kant was living in a time you had to deal with Scripture. You couldn't just throw it out and say, I don't believe the Bible. It's a bunch of fairy tales. Let me tell you what I think, and everybody's listening. You know, you had to deal with the Bible because everybody believed the Bible to some extent or some way. So Kant dealt with Genesis 3, and you know how he viewed it? You know how he interpreted Genesis 3? He saw it as a positive account of man emancipating himself from the bondage of nature to the freedom of human reason. In other words, Kant believed that Genesis 3 shows that success and freedom are found in liberating oneself from subordination to God's Word. That's what Adam did. That was a good thing, said Immanuel Kant. And the world's believed him. It always has. He just became a spokesman. And if we follow the philosophy of our world when it comes to sin, we follow Immanuel Kant's understanding of Genesis 3, and we say that it is good to usurp the authority of God. If, on the other hand, our hearts belong to God, we realize that self-autonomy always leads to bondage and pain, that in the presence of God there are pleasures forevermore. Is the restlessness and the emptiness of our soul filled by self, or is it filled by God? Your answer to that is not something you can ignore, and it's not something that's insignificant. Because your answer to it evidences whether you belong to the offspring of the serpent or the offspring of a woman. The way that you actually live, answer uh, uh, the way that you actually live determines the joy that you then experience in life no matter the harsh realities that we face. It's a fallen world, but there's hope. And thus there is joy. Joy in a gracious and loving, all-satisfying God. We can only know Him if we are of His offspring, if we are His children. If we are not, then we see in Genesis 3 a picture of ourselves and a prophecy of the pain that we will ever endure. Father, we are thankful for the Scriptures once again and how they hold so true